Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up... When they got the ID card, they think that they will use this ID card but unfortunately their name was not on the electoral list. Despite some hiccups, unofficial results from Vanuatu's snap election are coming in also. Debt has been building up across developing economies for a long time, even before COVID. A new UNDP report says the world's poorest need debt relief now to avert development crisis. And later on... And we are happy that Fiji has represented the Pacific. And I think this will be a moral booster for the women rugby in the Pacific. The Fijiana face South Africa in a do-or-die game to keep their World Cup quarterfinal hopes alive. Unofficial results from Thursday's snap election shows most of the current members of parliament have held on to their seats. The Vanuatu Daily Post is reporting at least 25 of the 51 former MPs have managed to secure their seats according to unofficial results. Official results are not expected until next week. Meanwhile, there is frustration and disappointment among would-be voters who say they were turned away from polling stations in Vanuatu on snap election day. Our correspondent in Port Vila, Ilea Bule, says they arrived with their ID cards but were told they needed to have registered the document with the electoral office before heading to the polls. Lydia Lewis reports the latest as of Friday afternoon. The would-be voters are appealing to authorities to raise awareness around the requirements needed to vote when using an ID card. Mr Bulle says the people his team has spoken with had no idea that was a requirement to vote. When you got your ID card from civil status, you have to go to the electoral office to activate it in their system. But many of the, the people of Anuatu, when they got the ID card, they think that they will, they will vote, they will use the, this ID card to vote. But unfortunately, when they turn up at the police station, uh, their name was, was not on the electoral, electoral list. The Daily Post reports several polling stations have experienced the same issue. One electoral officer expressed his concern about not having enough time to inform the public about what they need to do to prepare ahead of polling day due to the snap election. Voters had one day to cast their vote. Many people had to walk up to an hour in the rain. Voting was reportedly extended in some places as people were still waiting in line more than two hours past the deadline. The presiding officer can only close the police station when uh, there is no longer people who in line to, to, to cast his vote. And that's that, that when the, the presiding officer can decide to, to close the police station. Mr Bulle says some polling stations only had one room for people to cast their vote and that may have slowed down the process. Official results will be announced after the Vanuatu Electoral Office receives all of the ballot boxes back, which it says usually takes around one week. This is a developing story and we will be carrying the latest updates via our news bulletins and on our website rnzi.com. A new report from the UN Development Programme is warning 50% of the world's poorest countries need debt relief now to avert a major systemic development crisis. Released on Tuesday, the UNDP report, avoiding too little too late on international debt relief, highlights the ripple effects of government responses to the recent economic crisis and warns of the potential impacts. Joining me from New York was the author of this report, UNDP economist Lars Jensen. Kieran, welcome on Pacific Waves, Lars. What were some of the main findings? 
So we have found in our in our uh, um, newly published uh, paper on the debt crisis that 54 developing economies are dealing with severe debt problems. Uh, we have the biggest uh, sub geographical subgroup is Sub-Saharan Africa with 24 countries, followed by Latin America and the Caribbean, 10 countries, and then East Asia and Pacific with uh, eight countries. Um, and taken together, we find that these countries, they account for a little more than 3% of the global economy. They account for about 18% of the global population, but more than 50% of the um, of, of people living in extreme poverty. And we also find that there's a high correlation between being climate vulnerable and being debt vulnerable. For instance, if we look at the 54 countries we identified as debt, the most debt vulnerable, they contain 28 of the world's top 50 most climate vulnerable countries. Uh, so these are some of the main, the main findings of the report. And the overall conclusion is that we had an unfolding debt crisis, uh, a debt crisis building up even before COVID delivered a major shock to debt across the world. And now many of these countries are also dealing with the cost of living crisis from high energy and food prices. Um, so it's a really bad situation. A lot of developing economies are being hit from uh, many different sides, from rapidly rising interest rates, from a strong dollar, from uh, falling export earnings and capital outflows. So they are taking a, a lot of hits while they were already in a vulnerable position. And that's why we, in our report, we call for um, a refocusing on, on debt relief for developing economies to focus more on comprehensive restructuring so that we can deal with the debt crisis and avoid um, repeating historical mistakes of providing too little debt relief too late. Now, our, most of our listeners for this program are in the Pacific. For for small island developing states, what are some specific uh, concerns uh, that emerge from this re report? So, in general, when we when uh, we look at a lot of the small island developing states that sits, um, many of them actually they have relatively low overall debt to GDP ratios, meaning that. They are not necessarily facing any uh, sort of sort of solvency problem, or their debt is not necessarily considered uh, unsustainable in the medium to long term. But many of them are facing um, immediate or near term stress, especially because of their high uh, food and energy import dependence. So you have very high, very elevated food and energy prices, and that is uh, putting a lot of pressure on their balance payments on their current accounts and they are forced to um, pay these large import bills uh, by borrowing money in uh, under conditions that are where, uh, in a situation where the funding conditions are have tightened uh, very strongly so that that's uh, that's in, if you look across sits that's a general that's the, sort of the general problem for the the call that you've made for the for the for the solutions if um at the risk of getting us into really technical territory, what, what are some of the specific solutions to the challenges faced by SIDS in particular? So in, I would say in general, on, in the paper, we're calling for countries to, to, for the international community to step up debt relief and to do it 
uh, within the common framework, the G20 common framework. And we're calling for a refocusing on debt relief from um, predominantly uh, rescheduling of payments and liquidity support to also contain write-offs and haircuts for countries that need it. But whether or not which countries would need it in terms of, uh, as opposed to just liquidity support will often be determined but by what is called the debt sustainability analysis performed by the IMF or the World Bank or jointly by the IMF and the World Bank. And as I mentioned before, a lot of SIDs do not necessarily have solvency problems. Some do, many don't. They have more uh, issues of liquidity problems. And then they also have issues uh, of often being faced with these um, external shocks, shocks coming externally to their economies. So that can, for instance, be when we see these large jumps or large volatility in commodity prices, such as food and energy. It can also be shocks coming from a, an intensifying climate crisis, uh, extreme weather events, hurricanes, floodings, and so forth. So one of the things that we also call for in this new, um, new way of dealing with debt relief is the use of what we call state contingent clauses um, under, under new and restructured debt. So that means, for instance, you put in hur hurricane clauses in your debt so that you automatically get debt service suspension if a hurricane hits or if there's a flooding or and you can, you can imagine many different ways of doing state contingent debt. It could also be um, the trigger of when you're, you are um, suspending payments or not could also be tied to, for instance, key commodity prices or other economic indicators that are closely linked to the country's ability to repay creditors. So that's something that will help a lot of countries and maybe especially SITs to manage their debt better and manage these economic shocks coming from climate change, which we know will only intensify in the in the future. Um, there is an element of time here. You, you're saying the urgency to make sure that it's not too little too late in terms of debt relief. How urgent is this? What's the urgency and what, any timelines that you all are proposing that these um, activities and things be done by? I think we're already... Uh, I think we're already late on it. I mean, we've seen that this debt has been building up across developing economies for a long time, even before COVID. We have seen how uh, country, more and more countries are rated in these DSAs as being in high or uh, in medium high and in debt distress. We have seen how rating uh, ratings, credit ratings have been falling and falling. We have seen how interest rates now have been rising very fast. So I think we're already uh, we're already late here, and really I think when we look at history, what we have learned is that the a debt crisis uh, of this magnitude is only really resolved when the focus of resolution changes from continued liquidity support and rescheduling rescheduling of loans to also include write-offs or haircuts. Like we saw with, the, for instance, the Brady Plan in the 1980s, or as we saw with HIPIC in the in the 90s and zeros, um, and what we are exploring now, or uh, there seems to be, um, a lot of people are pushing the idea that we should have sort of a, a debt for climate uh, initiative, so that countries are forgiven, uh, or a large portion of their debt is 
written down in return for promises on uh, climate object, reaching climate objectives, such as investments in climate ad adaptation, for instance. Um, but unfortunately, there seems to be very little political will to go this route. That's sort of the deadlock we're in. If, if there's no political will, from, especially from the official sector, which has, which, which has to be the first mover on these things, then it, it's very hard to get such a grand, you know, debt for climate deal uh, going. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lars. Thank you so much. Time. Uh, no thank problem. you for speaking to me so late. <laughs> no problem. Take sure. care. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. A New Zealand-designed and built solar energy solution is now ensuring critical eye surgery in Papua New Guinea can be done without power interruptions. The system, commissioned by the Fred Hollows Foundation of New Zealand, has been delivered to the Madang Eye Clinic, which undertakes thousands of eye operations every year. The PNG country manager for Fred Hollows, Lucinda Guluman-Kisip, told Don Wiseman about the significance of the clinic having access to solar power and how all the material needed arrived in one big box from New Zealand. It comes in a 20-foot container. It's got a lot of equipment already set up inside. And so all we had to do was unpack the container and take out all the solar panels and have them installed on the roof of uh, the Medang Eye Clinic. And that has meant that we are now able to switch from being connected to the main power grid to being off-grid. So the panels are already established and yeah, the clinic is currently off-grid at the moment, running on 100% solar power. Day and night? Day and night, yes. Whilst our operations are only from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the afternoon, the panels also helped us with security lighting uh, at night as well so it includes batteries and that sort of thing yes it, it, as i said in the container it came complete with all the other i guess accessories if you like the important equipment that uh, that's needed the batteries uh, to support solar power of course we have a genset as well a generator on the side the generator helps to charge the batteries when when it's uh you know dull or rainy day but otherwise yes it all came in a con container which was unpacked and, and set up and and ready to go and we're now uh off grid why is it so important? Well, PNGs have had its fair share of issues with power supply and maintaining consistent power supply, and particularly for health facilities such as an eye clinic, it's very important that we have consistent power supply. We haven't been able to have our normal operations, um, have our operating theater up and going without without a consistent power supply. So we'd be getting about two hours of power supply, then we'd have a blackout for maybe the next two or three hours, which was really inconsistent, really impacted on how we ran the clinic, particularly with surgeries and ensuring that our equipment was up and running to carry out our services. So it's very important to have this solar system, a solar power system installed in the clinic. That means that you can have more surgeries, you have more, you can see more patients in a day and more people have access to eye services. So it's it's been it's so important. It's it's actually really critical for the eye eye clinic in Medang that we have consistent power. The patients you're seeing are not just from Medang, are they? They are all over. Yes. The the patients we are seeing are coming from as far as West New Britain, so which means they have to travel either on aeroplane or by boat just to get down to maybe perhaps Lay City and travel by road into Medang 
or by plane. So people are coming from as far as the highlands provinces, some of the East Tipic and West Tipic provinces as well. So we have people coming from other parts of the country who come to access uh, eye services, eye care services at our clinic. How many patients would the Medang Eye Clinic see in a year? Um, we would see actually quite a significant number because we're seeing a uh, hundred a week, a hundred or more a week. So you know, you you multiply that by the fifty-two weeks. That's quite a big number that are coming, uh, thousands that are coming to our clinic on an annual basis. So it's, it's a Medang is pretty strategic. It's it's, um, it's almost like at the center of the country, and you can have people coming in from other other regions as well. So essentially, it's servicing. Um, three regions in Papua New Guinea, the Momase region, the Highlands region, and the New Guinea Islands region. And all of those those hundred-odd patients a week, they, they all need operations on their eyes? Not all of them. It, it depends on, on the cases, but one of the things we're seeing is a growing number of patients who are coming in. You know, word has gone out and the things, a lot of patients coming in for cataract surgeries and, and certainly for people accessing uh, treatment for, you know, diabetic-related complications of the eye, so di- what they call diabetic uh, retinopathy, so laser treatment. Those, those are the two big ones that are currently for the country and certainly at our Medang Eye Clinic. And being able to operate potentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week is going to be very helpful. Well, we certainly try to do during working hours, which is from five days a week, we certainly have patients that would stay for overnight in the wards for observation and, and treatment, post-surgery treatment, etc. So, yeah, you definitely have our teams working sometimes over the weekends as well to look after patients. Yeah. Fiji became the first Pacific Island country to participate at the Women's Rugby World Cup when they faced England in the opener last weekend at Eden Park in Auckland. Despite a heavy 84-14 loss in New Zealand, it's been hailed a step forward for Pacific Island rugby, which has for many years struggled to be inclusive of women. RNZ Pacific's Finau Funua spoke with the Fijiana and filed this report. Since winning bronze at the 2020 Olympic Games, the Fijiana or Fiji women's national rugby team have become the poster girls for inclusion in the sport of rugby in the Pacific Islands. Many players in the Fijiana squad have been extracted from that bronze medal winning team. One of them, lock forward Rajieli Davevoa, says their main mission is to serve as role models for upcoming Fijian women rugby players. Yeah, I used to play netball before. Then in 2016, I switched to rugby. It's been a lot to us, especially uh, thinking about the back at home, the family, and especially the small girls back at home. They want to join this. We want to make them uh, join the rugby instead of choosing any other sports. Across the world, the popularity of women's rugby has surged, with world rugby pouring millions into developing the sports. Last year, the Super Rugby launched its first professional women's tournament, which included a team from Fiji, the Women's Drawer. It's opened opportunities and career pathways for women in rugby. One success story is Fijiana center Rajieli Langeri Tampua, who has played professionally in England for the last five years. She says she's just pleased to have the opportunity to represent her country and her national jersey a prestige traditionally afforded only to men. 
Um, it's really important to me. It's always an honour, I think, just to represent my home country. Um, be able to play for the girls and to be the first Pacific team to be in the World Cup. I think it's an incredible honour and um, yeah, I'm really proud and grateful to be able to wear the jersey. Fiji has seen a rapid development of women's rugby. Last year, Fiji's first professional women's rugby team, the Drua, debuted in the Super Rugby Aupiki tournament. They also debuted in Australia's professional Super W season, beating all of their opponents to win the tournament. Fijiana line-out coach Inoke Males, who works as a development officer for women's rugby in Fiji, says it's the result of hard work and community support. As a development officer, uh, we have been working a lot on the women's uh, development on rugby. So the last year it's um, been built up across the Pacific, especially Fiji, Samoa, Tonga. And we are happy that Fiji has represented the Pacific for this uh, tournament and I think this will be a moral booster for the women rugby in the Pacific. This Sunday, the Fijiana face South Africa in a do-or-die game to keep their quarterfinal hopes alive. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas.